be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined us tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Emily Climbs, Chapter 2, Salad Days. In the last chapter, Emily explained how she dreamed of attending school in Shrewsbury, but thought Aunt Elizabeth was quite unlikely to let her go. In this chapter, Emily decides to maintain a log of all her good and bad deeds. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 2 Salad Days This book is not going to be wholly, or even mainly, made up of extracts from Emily's diary. But, by way of linking up matters unimportant enough for chapters in themselves, and yet necessary for a proper understanding of her personality and environment, I'm going to include some more of them. Besides, when one has material ready to hand, why not use it? Emily's diary, with all its youthful crudities and italics, really gives a better interpretation of her and of her imaginative and introspective mind in that, her fourteenth spring, than any biographer, however sympathetic, could do. So let us take another peep into the yellowed pages of that old Jimmy book, written long ago in the lookout of New Moon. February 15th, 19. I have decided that I will write down in this journal every day all my good deeds and all my bad ones. I got the idea out of a book, and it appeals to me. I mean to be as honest about it as I can. It will be easy, of course, to write down the good deeds, but not so easy to record the bad ones. 
Only one thing I think bad, that is. I was impertinent to Aunt Elizabeth. She thought I took too long washing the dishes. I didn't suppose there was any hurry, and I was composing a story called The Secret of the Mill. Aunt Elizabeth looked at me and then at the clock and said in her most disagreeable way, Is the snail your sister, Emily? No, snails are no relation to me, I said haughtily. It was not what I said, but the way I said it that was impertinent, and I meant it to be. I was very angry. Sarcastic speeches always aggravate me. Afterwards, I was very sorry that I had been in a temper but I was sorry because it was foolish and undignified, not because it was wicked. So I suppose that was not true repentance. As for my good deeds, I did two today. I saved two little lives. Saucy Sal had caught a poor snowbird, and I took it from her. It flew off quite briskly, and I'm sure it felt wonderfully happy. Later on, I went down to the cellar cupboard and found a mouse caught in a trap by its foot. The poor thing lay there, almost exhausted from struggling, with such a look in its black eyes. I couldn't endure it so I set it free, and it managed to get away quite smartly in spite of its foot. I do not feel sure about this deed. I know it was a good one from the mouse's point of view, but what about Aunt Elizabeth's? This evening, Aunt Laura and Aunt Elizabeth read and burned a box full of old letters. They read them aloud and commented on them while I sat in a corner and knitted my stockings. The letters were very interesting, and I learned a great deal about the Murrays I had never known before. I feel that it is quite wonderful to belong to a family like this. No wonder the Blairwater folks call us the chosen people, though they don't mean it as a compliment. I feel that I must live up to traditions of my family. I had a long letter from Dean Priest today. He is spending the winter in Algiers. He says he's coming home in April and is going to take rooms with his sister, Mrs. Fred Evans, for the summer. I'm so glad. It will be splendid to have him in Blairwater all summer. Nobody ever talks to me 
as Dean does. He is the nicest and most interesting old person I know. Aunt Elizabeth says he is selfish, as all the priests are. But then, she does not like the priests, and she always calls him Jarback, which somehow sets my teeth on edge. One of Dean's shoulders is a little higher than the other, but that is not his fault. I told Aunt Elizabeth once that I wished she would not call my friend that, but she only said, I did not nickname your friend, Emily. His own clan have always called him Jarback. The priests are not noted for delicacy. Teddy had a letter from Dean too, and a book. The Lives of Great Artists. Michelangelo, Raphael, Velasquez, Rembrandt, Titian. He says he dare not let his mother see him reading it. She would burn it. I'm sure if Teddy could only have his chance, he would be as great an artist as any of them. February 18th, 19. I had a lovely time with myself this evening, after school, walking on the brook road in Lofty John's Bush. The sun was low and creamy, and the snow so white, and the shadows so slender and blue. I think there is nothing so beautiful as tree shadows. And when I came out into the garden, my own shadow looked so funny, so long that it stretched right across the garden. I immediately made a poem of which two lines were, If we were as tall as our shadows, how tall our shadows would be. I think there is a good deal of philosophy in that. Tonight, I wrote a story, and Aunt Elizabeth knew what I was doing and was very much annoyed. She scolded me for wasting time, but it wasn't wasted time. I grew in it, I know I did, and there was something about some of the sentences I liked. I am afraid of the grey wood. That pleased me very much, and, white and stately, she walked the dark wood like a moonbeam. I think that is rather fine. Yet Mr. Carpenter tells me that wherever I think a thing especially fine, I am to cut it out. But oh, I can't cut that out, 
Not yet, at least. The strange part is that about three months after Mr. Carpenter tells me to cut a thing out, I come round to his point of view and feel ashamed of it. Mr. Carpenter was quite merciless over my essay today. Nothing about it suited him. Three alasses in one paragraph, Emily. One would have been too many in this year of grace. More irresistible, Emily. For heaven's sake, write English. That is unpardonable. It was, too. I saw it for myself, and I felt shame going all over me from head to foot like a red wave. Then, after Mr. Carpenter had blue-penciled almost every sentence and sneered at all my fine phrases and found fault with most of my constructions and told me I was too fond of putting cleverisms into everything I wrote. He flung my exercise book down, tore at his hair, and said, You write. Jade, get a spoon and learn to cook. Then he strode off, muttering maledictions, not loud, but deep. I picked up my poor essay and didn't feel very badly. I can cook already. I have learned a thing or two about Mr. Carpenter. The better my essays are, the more he rages over them. This one must have been quite good. But it makes him so angry and impatient to see where I might have made it still better and didn't, through carelessness, or laziness, or indifference, as he thinks. And he can't tolerate a person who could do better and doesn't. And he wouldn't bother with me at all if he didn't think I may amount to something by and by. Aunt Elizabeth does not approve of Mr. Johnson. She thinks his theology is not sound. He said in his sermon last Sunday that there was some good in Buddhism. He will be saying that there is some good in popery next, said Aunt Elizabeth indignantly at the dinner table. There may be some good in Buddhism. I must ask Dean about it when he comes home. March 2nd, 19 We were all at a funeral today. Old Mrs. Sarah Paul. I've always liked going to funerals. When I said that, Aunt Elizabeth looked shocked, and Aunt Laura said, 
Oh, Emily, dear. I rather like to shock Aunt Elizabeth, but I never feel comfortable if I worry Aunt Laura. She's such a darling. So I explained, or tried to. It is sometimes very hard to explain things to Aunt Elizabeth. Funerals are interesting, I said. And humorous, too. I think I only made matters worse by saying that. And yet, Aunt Elizabeth knew as well as I did that it was funny to see some of those relatives of Mrs. Paul who have fought with and hated her for years. She wasn't amiable, if she is dead. Sitting there, holding their handkerchiefs to their faces and pretending to cry. I knew quite well what each and every one was thinking in his heart. Jake Paul was wondering if the old Harridan had by any chance left him anything in her will. And Alice Paul, who knew she wouldn't get anything, was hoping Jake Paul wouldn't either. That would be satisfying to her. And Mrs. Charles Paul was wondering how soon it would be decent to do the house over the way she had always wanted it. And Mrs. Paul hadn't. And Aunt Min was worrying for fear there wouldn't be enough baked meats for such a mob of fourth cousins that they'd never expected and didn't want. And Lysett Paul was counting the people and feeling vexed because there wasn't as large an attendance as there was at Mrs. Henry Lister's funeral last week. When I told Aunt Laura this, she said gravely, All this may be true, Emily. She knew it was. But somehow it doesn't seem quite right for so young a girl as you to to be able to see these things, in short. However, I can't help seeing them. Darling Aunt Laura is always so sorry for people that she can't see their humorous side. But I saw other things too. I saw that little Jack Fritz, whom Mrs. Paul adopted, and was very kind to, was almost heartbroken. And I saw that Martha Paul was feeling sorry and ashamed to think of her bitter old quarrel with Mrs. Paul. And I saw that Mrs. Paul's face, that looked so discontented and thwarted in life, looked peaceful and majestic and even beautiful, as if death had satisfied her at last. Yes, funerals are interesting. March 5th, 19. 
It is snowing a little tonight. I love to see the snow coming down in slanting lines against the dark trees. I think I did a good deed today. Jason Merrowby was here helping Cousin Jimmy saw wood, and I saw him sneak into the pig house and take a swig from a whiskey bottle. But I did not say one word about it to anyone. That is my good deed. Perhaps I ought to tell Aunt Elizabeth, but if I did, she would never have him here again, and he needs all the work he can get for his poor wife's and children's sake. I find it is not always easy to be sure whether your deeds are good or bad. March 20th, 19 Yesterday, Aunt Elizabeth was very angry because I would not write an obituary poem for old Peter de Geer, who died last week. Mrs. de Geer came here and asked me to do it. I wouldn't. I felt very indignant at such a request. I felt it would be a desecration of my art to do such a thing. Though, of course, I didn't say that to Mrs. de Geer. For one thing, it would have hurt her feelings. And for another, she wouldn't have had the faintest idea what I meant. Even Aunt Elizabeth hadn't when I told her my reasons for refusing, after Mrs. de Geer had gone. You are always writing yards of trash that nobody wants, she said. I think you might write something that is wanted. It would have pleased poor old Mary de Geer. Desecration of your art indeed. If you must talk, Emily, why not talk sense? I proceeded to talk sense. Aunt Elizabeth, I said seriously. How could I write that obituary poem for her? I couldn't write an untruthful one to please anybody. And you know yourself that nothing good and truthful could be said about old Peter de Geer. Aunt Elizabeth did know this, and it posed her, but she was all the more displeased with me for that. She vexed me so much that I came up to my room and wrote an obituary poem about Peter, just for my own satisfaction. It is certainly great fun to write a truthful obituary of someone you don't like. Not that I disliked Peter de Geer. I just despised him as everybody did. But Aunt Elizabeth had annoyed me, and when I am annoyed, I can write very sarcastically. And again, 
I felt that something was writing through me. But a very different something from the usual one. A malicious, mocking something that enjoyed making fun of poor, lazy, shiftless, lying, silly, hypocritical old Peter de Geer. Ideas, words, rhymes, all seemed to drop into place while that something chuckled. I thought the poem was so clever that I couldn't resist the temptation to take it to school today and show it to Mr. Carpenter. I thought he would enjoy it, and I think he did too, in a way. But after he had read it, he laid it down and looked at me. I suppose there is a pleasure in satirising a failure, he said. Poor old Peter was a failure, and he is dead, and his maker may be merciful to him, but his fellow creatures will not. When I am dead, Emily, will you write like this about me? You have the power. Oh yes, it's all here. This is very clever. You can paint the weakness and foolishness and wickedness of a character in a way that is positively uncanny in a girl of your age. But is it worthwhile? Emily. No, no, I said. I was so ashamed and sorry that I wanted to get away and cry. It was terrible to think Mr. Carpenter imagined I would ever write so about him after all he has done for me. It isn't, said Mr. Carpenter. There is a place for satire. There are gangrenes that can only be burned out. But leave the burning to the great geniuses. It's better to heal than hurt. We failures know that. Oh, Mr. Carpenter, I began. I wanted to say he wasn't a failure. I wanted to say a hundred things, but he wouldn't let me. There, there, we won't talk of it, Emily. When I am dead, say, he was a failure, and none knew it more truly or felt it more bitterly than himself. Be merciful to the failures, Emily. Satirise wickedness if you must, but pity weakness. He stalked off then and called school in. I've felt wretched ever since, and I won't sleep tonight. But here and now I record this vow, most solemnly in my diary. My pen shall heal. Not hurt, 
and I write it in italics. Early Victorian or not, because I am tremendously earnest. I didn't tear that poem up, though. I couldn't. It really was too good to destroy. I put it away in my literary cupboard to read over once in a while for my own enjoyment. But I will never show it to anybody. Oh, how I wish I hadn't hurt Mr. Carpenter. April 1st, 19. Something I heard a visitor in Blairwater say today annoyed me very much. Mr. and Mrs. Alex Sawyer, who live in Charlottetown, were in the post office when I was there. Mrs. Sawyer is very handsome and fashionable and condescending. I heard her say to her husband, How do the natives of this sleepy place continue to live here, year in and year out? I should go mad. Nothing ever happens here. I would dearly have liked to tell her a few things about Blairwater. I could have been sarcastic with a vengeance. But of course, new moon people do not make scenes in public. So I contented myself with bowing very coldly when she spoke to me and sweeping past her. I heard Mr. Sawyer say, Who is that girl? And Mrs. Sawyer said, She must be that star puss. She has the Murray trick of holding her head all right. The idea of saying nothing ever happens here. Why, things are happening right along. Thrilling things. I think life here is extremely wonderful. We've always so much to laugh and cry and talk about. Look at all the things that have happened in Blairwater in just the last three weeks. Comedy and tragedy, all mixed up together. James Baxter has suddenly stopped speaking to his wife, and nobody knows why. She doesn't, poor soul, and she is breaking her heart about it. Old Alan Gillian, who hated pretense of any sort, died two weeks ago, and his last words were, See that there isn't any howling and sniffling at my funeral. So nobody howled or sniffed. Nobody wanted to, and since he had forbidden it, nobody pretended to. There never was such a cheerful funeral in Blairwater. I've seen weddings that were more melancholy. Ella Bryce's, for instance. 
What cast a cloud over hers was that she forgot to put on her white slippers when she dressed and went down to the parlour in a pair of old, faded bedroom shoes with holes in the toes. Really, people couldn't have talked more about it if she'd gone down without anything on. Poor Ella cried all through the wedding supper about it. Old Robert Scobie and his half-sister have quarrelled after living together for thirty years without a fuss. Although she is said to be very aggravating as a woman. Nothing she did or said ever provoked Robert into an outburst. But it seems that there was just one donut left from supper one evening recently. And Robert is very fond of donuts. He put it away in the pantry for a bedtime snack. And when he went to get it, he found that Matilda had eaten it. He went into a terrible rage, pulled her nose, called her a she-deviless, and ordered her out of his house. She's gone to live with her sister at Derry Pond, and Robert is going to bark it. Neither of them will ever forgive the other, Scobie-like, and neither will ever be happy or contented again. George Lake was walking home from Derry Pond one moonlit evening two weeks ago, and all at once he saw another very black shadow going along beside his on the moonlit snow. And there was nothing to cast that shadow. He rushed to the nearest house, nearly dead with fright, and they say he will never be the same man again. This is the most dramatic thing that has happened. It makes me shiver as I write of it. Of course, George must have been mistaken, but he is a truthful man, and he doesn't drink. I don't know what to think of it. Arminus Scobie is a very mean man and always buys his wife hats for her, lest she pay too much for them. They know this in the Shrewsbury stores and laugh at him. One day last week, he was in Jones and McCallum's buying her a hat, and Mr. Jones told him that if he would wear the hat from the store to the station, he would let him have it for nothing. Arminus did. It was a quarter of a mile to the station, and all the small boys in Shrewsbury ran after him and hooted him. But Arminus didn't care. He had saved three dollars and forty-nine cents. And, one evening, right here in New Moon, I dropped 
cooked a soft-boiled egg on Aunt Elizabeth's second-best cashmere dress. That was a happening. A kingdom might have been upset in Europe, and it wouldn't have made such a commotion at New Moon. So, Mistress Sawyer, you are vastly mistaken. Besides, apart from all happenings, the folks here are interesting in themselves. I don't like everyone, but I find everyone interesting. Miss Matty Small, who is forty and wears outrageous colours. She wore an old rose dress and a scarlet hat to church all last summer. Old Uncle Reuben Pascombe, who is so lazy that he held an umbrella over himself all one rainy night in bed when the roof began to leak, rather than get out and move the bed. Elder Mikulski, who thought it wouldn't do to say pants in a story he was telling about a missionary at prayer meeting, so always said politely, the clothes of his lower parts. A masseder, who carried off four prizes at the exhibition last fall with vegetables he stole from Ronnie Bascom's field, while Ronnie didn't get one prize. Jimmy Joe Bell, who came here from Derry Pond yesterday to get some lumber to build a hen house for my little dog. Old Luke Elliot, who is such a sympathetic fiend, that he even draws up a schedule of the year on New Year's Day and charts down all the days he means to get drunk on and sticks to it. They are all interesting and amusing and delightful. There, I've proved Mrs. Alex Sawyer to be so completely wrong that I feel quite kindly towards her, even though she did call me a puss. Why don't I like being called a puss, when cats are such nice things, and I like being called pussy? April 28, 19 Two weeks ago, I sent my very best poem, Wind Song, to a magazine in New York. And today, it came back with just a little printed slip, saying, We regret we cannot use this contribution. I feel dreadfully. I suppose I can't really write anything that is any good. I can. The magazine will be glad to print my pieces some day. I didn't tell Mr. Carpenter I sent it. I wouldn't get any sympathy from him. He says, 
Five years from now will be time enough to begin pestering editors. But I know that some poems I've read in that very magazine were not a bit better than Wind Song. I feel more like writing poetry in spring than any other time. Mr. Carpenter tells me to fight against the impulse. He says spring has been responsible for more trash than anything else in the universe of God. Mr. Carpenter's way of talking has a tang to it. May 1st, 19. Dean is home. He came to his sister's yesterday, and this evening he was here, and we walked in the garden, and up and down the sundial walk, and talked. It was splendid to have him back, with his mysterious green eyes, and his nice mouth. We had a long conversation. We talked of Algiers and the transmigration of souls and of being cremated and of profiles. Dean says I have a good profile. Pure Greek. I always like Dean's compliments. Star o' morning. How you have grown, he said. I left a child last autumn, and I find a woman. I will be fourteen in three weeks, and I am tall for my age. Dean seems to be glad of this, quite unlike Aunt Laura, who always sighs when she lengthens my dresses and thinks children grow up too fast. So goes time by, I said, quoting the motto on the sundial, and feeling quite sophisticated. You are almost as tall as I am, he said, and then added bitterly. To be sure, Jarback Priest is of no very stately height. I have always shrunk from referring to his shoulder in any way. But now I said, Dean, please don't sneer at yourself like that. Not with me, at least. I never think of you as Jarback. Dean took my hand and looked right into my eyes, as if he were trying to read my very soul. Are you sure of that, Emily? Don't you often wish that I wasn't lame and crooked? For your sake I do, I answered. But as far as I am concerned, it doesn't make a bit of difference and never will. And never will. Dean repeated the words emphatically. If I were sure of that, Emily, if I were only sure of that. You can be sure of it, 
I declared quite warmly. I was vexed because he seemed to doubt it, and yet something in his expression made me feel a little uncomfortable. It suddenly made me think of the time he rescued me from the cliff on Malvern Bay and told me my life belonged to him since he had saved it. I don't like the thought of my life belonging to anyone but myself. Not anyone, even Dean, much as I like him. And in some ways, I like Dean better than anyone in the world. When it got darker, the stars came out, and we studied them through Dean's splendid new field glasses. It was very fascinating. Dean knows all about the stars. It seems to me he knows all about everything. But when I said so, he said, There is one secret I do not know. I would give everything else I do know for it. One secret, perhaps, I shall never know it. The way to win. The way to win. What? I asked curiously. My heart's desire, said Dean dreamily, looking at a shimmering star that seemed to be hung on the very tip of one of the three princesses. It seems now as desirable and unattainable as that gem-like star, Emily. But... Who knows? I wonder what it is that Dean wants so much. May 4th, 19 Dean brought me a lovely portfolio from Paris, and I have copied my favourite verse from the fringed gentian on the inside of the cover. I will read it over every day and remember my vow to climb the alpine path. I begin to see that I will have to do a good bit of scrambling, though I once expected, I think, to soar right up to that far-off goal on shining wings. Mr. Carpenter has banished that fond dream. Dig in your toes and hang on with your teeth. That's the only way, he says. Last night, in bed, I thought out some lovely titles for the books I'm going to write in the future. A Lady of High Degree True to Faith and Vow Oh. Rare Pale Margaret. I got that from Tennyson. The cast of Ver de Ver. Ditto. And A Kingdom by the Sea. Now, if I can only get ideas to match the titles. I'm writing a story 
called The House Among the Rowans. Also a very good title, I think. But the love talk still bothers me. Everything of the kind I write seems so stiff and silly the minute I write it down that it infuriates me. I asked Dean if he could teach me how to write it properly because he promised long ago that he would. But he said I was too young yet. Said it in that mysterious way of his which always seems to convey the idea that there is so much more in his words than mere sounds that express them. I wish I could speak so significantly, because it makes you very interesting. This evening, after school, Dean and I began to read the Alhambra over again sitting on the stone bench in the garden. That book always makes me feel as if I had opened a little door and stepped straight into fairyland. How I would love to see the Alhambra, I said. We will go to see it sometime. Together, said Dean. Oh, that would be lovely, I cried. Do you think we can ever manage it, Dean? Before Dean could answer, I heard Teddy's whistle in Lofty John's bush. The dear little whistle of two short high notes and one long low one that is our signal. Excuse me. I must go. Teddy's calling me, I said. Must you always go when Teddy calls? asked Dean. I nodded and explained. He only calls like that when he wants me especially, and I have promised I will always go if I possibly can. I want you especially, said Dean. I came up this evening on purpose to read the Alhambra with you. Suddenly, I felt very unhappy. I wanted to stay with Dean dreadfully, and yet I felt as if I must go to Teddy. Dean looked at me piercingly. Then he shut up the Alhambra. Go, he said. I went, but things seemed spoiled somehow. May 10th, 19. I have been reading three books Dean lent me this week. One was like a rose garden. Very pleasant, but just a little too sweet. And one was like a pine wood on a mountain, full of balsam and tang. I loved it, and yet it filled me with a sort of despair 
It was written so beautifully. I can never write like that, I feel sure. And one, it was just like a pigsty. Dean gave me that one by mistake. He was very angry with himself when he found out. Angry and distressed. Star, star, I would never have given you a book like that. My confounded carelessness. Forgive me. That book is a faithful picture of one world, but not your world, thank God, nor any world you will ever be a citizen of. Star, promise me you will forget that book. I'll forget it if I can, I said. But I don't know if I can. It was so ugly. I've not been so happy since I read it. I feel as if my hands were soiled somehow, and I couldn't wash them clean. And I have another strange feeling, as if some gate had been shut behind me, shutting me into a new world I don't quite understand or like but through which I must travel. Tonight, I tried to write a description of Dean in my Jimmy book of character sketches, but I didn't succeed. What I wrote seemed like a photograph, not a portrait. There is something in Dean that is beyond me. Dean took a picture of me the other day with his new camera, but he wasn't pleased with it. It doesn't look like you, he said. But of course, one can never photograph starlight. Then he added, quite sharply, I thought. Tell that young imp of a Teddy Kent to keep your face out of his pictures. He has no business to put you into everyone he draws. He doesn't, I cried. Why, Teddy never made but the one picture of me, the one Aunt Nancy stole. I said it quite viciously and unashamed for I've never forgiven Aunt Nancy for keeping that picture. He's got something of you in every picture, said Dean stubbornly. Your eyes, the curve of your neck, the tilt of your head, your personality, that's the worst. I don't mind your eyes and your curves so much, but I won't have the cub putting a bit of your soul into everything he draws. Probably he doesn't know he's doing it, which makes it all the worse. I don't understand you, I said, quite haughtily. 
But Teddy is wonderful. Mr. Carpenter says so. And Emily of New Moon echoes it. Oh, the kid has talent. He'll do something someday if his morbid mother doesn't ruin his life. But let him keep his pencil and brush off my property. Dean laughed as he said this, but I held my head high. I am not anybody's property, not even in fun, and I never will be. May 12th, 19. Aunt Ruth and Uncle Wallace and Uncle Oliver were all here this afternoon. I like Uncle Oliver, but I am not much fonder of Aunt Ruth and Uncle Wallace than I ever was. They held some kind of family conclave in the parlour with Aunt Elizabeth and Aunt Laura. Cousin Jimmy was allowed in, but I was excluded, although I feel perfectly certain that it had something to do with me. I think Aunt Ruth didn't get her own way either, for she snubbed me continually all through supper and said I was growing weedy. Aunt Ruth generally snubs me, and Uncle Wallace patronises me. I prefer Aunt Ruth's snubs, because I don't have to look as if I liked them. I endured them to a certain point, and then the lid flew off. Aunt Ruth said to me, Emily, don't contradict just as she might have spoken to a mere child. I looked her right in the eyes and said coldly, Aunt Ruth, I think I am too old to be spoken to in that fashion now. You are not too old to be very rude and impertinent, said Aunt Ruth with a sniff. And if I were in Elizabeth's place, I would give you a sound box on the ear, miss. I hate to be emilied and missed and sniffed at. It seems to me that Aunt Ruth has all the Murray faults and none of their virtues. Uncle Oliver's son, Andrew, came with him and is going to stay for a week. He is four years older than I am. May 19th, 19. This is my birthday. I am 14 years old today. I wrote a letter from myself at 14 to myself at 24. Sealed it up and put it away in my cupboard to be opened on my 24th birthday. I made some predictions in it. I wonder if they will have come to pass when I open it. 
Aunt Elizabeth gave me back all father's books today. I was so glad. It seems to me that a part of father is in those books. His name is in each one in his own handwriting and the notes he made on the margins. They seem like little bits of letters from him. I've been looking over them all the evening, and father seems so near to me again, and I feel both happy and sad. One thing spoiled the day for me. In school, when I went up to the blackboard to work a problem, everybody suddenly began to titter. I could not imagine why. Then I discovered that someone had pinned a sheet of fool's cap to my back, on which was printed in big black letters, Emily Bird Star, Authoress of the Four-Legged Duck. They laughed more than ever when I snatched it off and threw it in the coal scuttle. It infuriates me when anyone ridicules my ambitions like that. I came home angry and sore. But when I had sat on the steps of the summer house and looked at one of Cousin Jimmy's big purple pansies for five minutes, all my anger went away. Nobody can keep on being angry if she looks into the heart of a pansy for a little while. Besides, the time will come when they will not laugh at me. Andrew went home yesterday. Aunt Elizabeth asked me how I liked him. She never asked me how I liked anyone before. My likings were not important enough. I suppose she is beginning to realise that I am no longer a child. I said I thought he was good and kind and stupid and uninteresting. Aunt Elizabeth was so annoyed, she would not speak to me the whole evening. Why? I had to tell the truth, and Andrew is. May 21st, 19 Old Kelly was here today, for the first time this spring, with a load of shining new tins. He brought me a bag of candies as usual, and teased me about getting married, also as usual. But he seemed to have something on his mind, and when I went to the dairy to get him the drink of milk he'd asked for, he followed me. Girl, dear, he said mysteriously. I met Jarback Priest in the lane. Does he be coming here much? 
I cocked my head at the Murray angle. If you mean Mr. Dean Priest, I said, he comes often. He is a particular friend of mine. Old Kelly shook his head. Girl, dear, I warn ye, never be after saying I didn't warn ye. I told ye the day I took ye to the priest pond, never to marry a priest, didn't I now? Mr. Kelly, you're too ridiculous, I said, angry, and yet feeling it was absurd to be angry with old Jock Kelly. I'm not going to marry anybody. Mr. Priest is old enough to be my father, and I'm just a little girl he helps in her studies. Old Kelly gave his head another shake. I know the priest's girl, dear, and when they do be after setting their minds on a thing, you might as well try to turn the wind. This jar back now, they tell me he's had his eye on you ever since he fished you up from the Malvern rocks. He's just biding his time till you get old enough for courting. They tell me he's an infidel, and it's well known that when he was being christened, he reached up and clawed the spectacles off the minister. So what would you expect? I needn't be telling you he's lame and crooked. You can see that for yourself. Take foolish old Kelly's advice and cut loose while there's time. Now, don't be looking at me like the Murray's girl, dear. Sure, and it's for your own good I do be speaking. I walked off and left him. One couldn't argue with him over such a thing. I wish people wouldn't put such ideas into my mind. They stick there like burrs. I won't feel as comfortable with Dean for weeks now, though I know perfectly well every word old Kelly said was nonsense. After old Kelly went away, I came up to my room and wrote a full description of him in the Jimmy book. Isla has got a new hat trimmed with clouds of blue tulle and red cherries with big blue tulle boughs under the chin. I did not like it and told her so. She was furious and said I was jealous and hadn't spoken to me for two days. I thought it over. I knew I was not jealous, but I concluded I had made a mistake. I will never again tell anyone a thing like that. It was true, but it was not tactful. I hope Isla will have forgiven me by tomorrow. I miss her horribly 
when she is offended with me. She's such a dear thing, and so jolly and splendid when she isn't vexed. Teddy is a little squiffy with me too, just now. I think it is because Jeff North walked home with me from prayer meeting last Wednesday night. I hope that is the reason. I like to feel that I have that much power over Teddy. I wonder if I ought to have written that down. But it's true. If Teddy only knew it, I've been very unhappy and ashamed over that affair. At first, when Jeff singled me out from all the girls, I was quite proud of it. It was the very first time I had had an escort home, and Jeff is a town boy, very handsome and polished, and all the older girls in Blairwater quite foolish about him. So I sailed away from the church door with him, feeling as if I had grown up all at once. But we hadn't gone far before I was hating him. He was so condescending. He seemed to think I was simply a little country girl who must be quite overwhelmed with the honour of his company. And that was true at first. That was what stung me. To think I had been such a little fool. He kept saying, Really, you surprise me, in an affected, drawling kind of way, whenever I made a remark. And he bored me. He couldn't talk sensibly about anything, or else he wouldn't try to with me. I was quite savage by the time we got to New Moon. And then that insufferable creature asked me to kiss him. I drew myself up. Oh, I was Murray clear through at that moment all right. I felt I was looking exactly like Aunt Elizabeth. I do not kiss young men, I said disdainfully. Jeff laughed and caught my hand. Why, you little goose, what do you suppose I came home with you for, he said. I pulled my hand away from him and walked into the house. But before I did that, I did something else. I slapped his face. Then I came up to my room and cried with shame over being insulted and having been so undignified in resenting it. Dignity is a tradition of New Moon, and I felt that I had been false to it. But I think I surprised Jeff North in right good earnest.
May 24th, 19. Jenny Strang told me today that Jeff North told her brother that I was a regular spitfire and he had enough of me. Aunt Elizabeth has found out that Jeff came home with me and told me today that I would not be trusted to go alone to prayer meeting again. May 25th, 19 I'm sitting here in my room at twilight. The window is open and the frogs are singing of something that happened very long ago. All along the middle garden walk, the folk are holding up great fluted cups of ruby and gold and pearl. It is not raining now, but it rained all day, a rain scented with lilacs. I like all kinds of weather, and I like rainy days, soft, misty, rainy days, when the wind woman just shakes the top of the spruces gently, and wild, tempestuous, Streaming rainy days. I like being shut in by the rain. I like to hear it thudding on the roof and beating on the panes and pouring off the eaves while the wind woman skirls like a mad old witch in the woods and through the garden. Still, If it rains when I want to go anywhere, I growl just as much as anybody. An evening like this always makes me think of the spring that father died three years ago, and that dear little old house down at Maywood. I've never been back since... I wonder if anyone is living in it now, and if Adam and Eve and the rooster pine and the praying tree are just the same, and who is sleeping in my old room there, and if anyone is loving the little birches and playing with the wind woman in the spruce barrens. Just as I wrote the word spruce barrens, An old memory came back to me. One spring evening, when I was eight years old, I was running about the barrens, playing hide-and-seek with the wind woman, and I found a little hollow between two spruces that was just carpeted with tiny, bright green leaves when everything else was still brown and faded. They were so beautiful that the flash came as I looked at them. It was the very first time it ever came to me. I suppose that is why I remember those little green leaves so distinctly. No one else remembers them. 
Perhaps no one else saw them. I have forgotten other leaves, but I remember them every spring, and with each remembrance, I feel again the wonder moment they gave me.